Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Sopranos Podcast, Episode 2, Ricochet. There are some people that are not ideal candidates for parenthood. That quote was spoken by Dr. Melfi in this Episode 2 of The Sopranos, Season 1, 46 Long, is written by, and di- written by David Chase and directed by Daniel Attias. I hope I'm saying that right, but I think that's it. So here we are, guys. I'm Chris D'Amato. Paul Mancini. And Jordan Hugh. Right, and we're here to uh, discuss the second episode in the series. If the pilot is designed to kind of plant the seeds, establish the world, and introduce us to all the characters, to me, a good second episode sort of establishes quote-unquote normalcy in the universe of the story, and I think this episode does a great job at that. I want to start this the same way I started the last one. Let's just go around the table here and give me your initial just gut reaction to 46 Long as, as a chapter in this story. Uh, for me, the there's so much that happens in this episode that's interesting, compelling, fun. For me, we're really getting into Tony and his mother and the difficulty that it brings up for him emotionally, psychologically, because of how we'll see by the end how his aggression very clearly brought out by his mother is then misdirected on a... Uh, humorously hapless soul, but nonetheless someone who's not quite directly responsible for mm. that difficulty. So um, for me, it, it, it lays down that pipe of, as you said, what kind of the normal run-of-the-mill day is, how these guys operate, how the families, both the gangster family and the nuclear family operate, as well as, I think, really beginning the trajectory of the storyline of Tony and his mother. So um, in looking at the episode through the lens of a ricochet, which is defined as a shot that uh, rebounds off of one or more surfaces, uh, we can see that in the parallel of both Tony's home life and his quote-unquote professional life. So um, the inspiration for this lens came from, of course, the incident whereby, uh, you know, Brendan has hired out uh, two of his own men, one of which is named Special K, in this episode, who uh, makes a mistake, you know, he drops his gun, uh, and the bullet uh, that fires from the drop gun kills uh, the truck driver for for the for uh, the truck driver of the shipment that they're they're knocking over, and uh, of course this creates a lot of problems for Tony in his relationships with Junior, in his relationships with Christopher, uh, in his relationships with with his whole family on that side. Uh, similarly, we have the parallel uh, in his home life where. You know, uh, there's the the fire in Livia's house. Uh, she is unable to make the phone call correctly to save herself. Uh, the conclusion is drawn by both Tony and Carmela that she can no longer live alone. And when he is having the scene with Dr. Melfi in this episode, she is trying to guide him towards this correct solution or this correct conclusion that, you know, Livia is a, a difficult person. She is a mm. woman with issues of her own, but Tony becomes a surface of protection for his mother. He will deflect that bullet. He will say, nope, can't. he can't accept it. He has to be the good Italian boy on e- this one. Exactly. And that yeah. anger and frustration is then deflected onto Carmela, who he now is accusing of being like a not very accepting, welcoming, familial person. And ultimately, as Paul intimated just a moment ago, all of that frustration is actually brought down on Georgie the barman at the at the Bada Bing, who suffers yeah. the physical consequence of Tony's frustration. 
and I think 46 long in this way, really from the heist to the meth addiction to anything it does for the sake of normalcy, as you say, is kind of a microcosm for how everything operates in the Sopranos universe. Something is bothersome for Tony on either the professional or the familial level. These things are forever interconnected because of Tony. He is the linchpin that holds these worlds together. And the devastation on one side always affects the other. But because of Tony's uh, disposition, uh, because of his feelings towards his mother, his feelings towards his wife, he can't really see the truth. And Dr. Melfi is trying to help him to find that door, but can't quite get him there. So, um, you know, Tony is always doomed to, uh, I think always land his rage on sometimes where it has not been earned or uh, the bullet hits a target for which it was not intended. God, that is so astute. And <laughs> I mean, this this is, again, a theme that permeates through the entire series is this idea of misdirected anger uh, and misdirected rage. And, uh, you know, you, you articulated so beautifully how uh, Dr. Melfi's kind of quest in this episode is to get Tony to own his anger and own his... his the fact that he... Deep down, both Tony and you know Tony knows that he that Melfi's on the on the button here. That's why he gets so agitated in that in that therapy scene where he's like, "I'm the ungrateful fuck that lets her you know exclude exclude scooter from my home, whatever." He's lying. We in this very episode, Carmela offers Livia, "Do you want to you know you can always come live with us?" So Tony is like burying, like so many characters do, burying what's really going on with this lie he's told himself to mask his own feelings because he has to be the good Italian son. He, you know, uh, he says in a future episode, well, you know, I don't want, like I said, no, no spoilers here, but he does say at some point, that's a miserable thing to be a bad son. You know, who wants to be a bad son? And, um, so the theme of ricochet and misdirection is, is kind of trickling all over this episode. Another theme, so you guys covered that. Another theme I want to talk about that kind of jumped out to me, it's a little bit more of kind of a fun theme, is this, uh, it's so silly because I think in 2019, 2020, we live in like a technological hellhole as far as like the amount of ways that technology has complicated and changed our lives. But there is this theme of... of, of change and technological struggle going on in this episode. I mean, so many things involve characters utilizing technology and it, and it going wrong. Um, for instance, Brendan fumbles the gun and it goes off. There's um, um, uh, Livia struggling with the phone and the stuff in the kitchen. Livia hitting her friend with the car, thinking she's going backwards and going and ends up going forward. Um you know, Christopher says technology comes to the Bing, and then they have this kind of uh, colloquy out in the parking lot about laser discs versus DVDs. Now, you know, in, in this day and age, that sounds incredibly dated, but at the time, <laughs> you know, these were like, oh, Georgie struggling with the phone in the Bing. That's another example of like, you know, there's just a lot of characters kind of clashing with technology and change. Um, and that's, it actually that's reminded kind of, me. Uh, Paul will really appreciate this as a huge Arthur Miller fan, but it actually really reminded me of Willie Loman and the Wire Recorder from Death of a Salesman. Uh, just to refresh the listener, um, Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman, uh, kind of an old school guy, not a big technology guy. Livia would have loved him. Uh, <laughs> he's trying to reason with his boss about his current work situation, and his boss is kind of just fixated on his new wire recorder, just a, just a device that records your voice and plays it back to you. The, the play is set in mid-20th century. Um, and at one point, um, Willie accidentally hits the button on the wire recorder and just starts playing the whole conversation back, including, you know, uh, 
significantly the, the voice of Howard's son is, is playing on that recorder. And yeah, characters being overwhelmed by technology is, is to me, uh, perhaps really obviously, that is the future come knocking mm. on the door of the present. You know, and Tony is working so hard to just try to sustain the past. Livy is working so hard to try to sustain the past, but technology is the literal fist on the door that's saying, "Hey, I'm coming. I'm already here. I'm in your house. You have to go." Mm. You know, I think, and uh, I, these points I think are so compelling. And as Jordan was mentioning a minute ago, you use the framework of the ricochet and how it can misdirect anger. And something that I thought of, I wrote down. Um, Samuel Beckett's name when I knew we were going to record um, over the weekend in the Theater of the Absurd. And if Theater of the Absurd, if you could break it down very simply, it's the world in which there is no inherent meaning and communication breaks down. So if the key is that communication breaking down, then something in this world of misdirected anger, of people trying to navigate the I don't know the, what the technological wasteland and failing creates this very rich tapestry. And again, it, it's it's somewhat bleak as we discuss it thematically. But once again, we're talking about scenes that we sat and watched together and laughed out oh, loud. Oh, God, this right? episode very is funny. These, uh, 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 these early season one episodes have so much humor in them. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the... <laughs> um, I mean, Georgie in the Bing, who is a character that I love and, and will have more prominence on this show as we go further. Uh, Georgie um, is played in such a funny way by uh, actor Frank Santarelli. Uh, he's just such a, a dope that you can't help. But you're simultaneously annoyed by him, but like you can't help but feel sorry for him as well. He's just like... <laughs> I f- I feel like the people who are regulars at the Bing have seen this guy get his ass kicked many times by Tony. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun firsts in this episode. Uh, I I, I want to bring up some of these great characters we're introduced to, Georgie being one of them. Um, but uh, no, most notably, the two characters who uh, bring come into this episode that play a, a degree of prominence in the series proper, uh, especially this season are the character of Jackie April, played by Michael Rispoli. He's kind of the boss of this Jersey family. And we also have, who I feel is a very underrated character, um, as as a guy who is a pro wrestling fan and, and loves the bad guys. Uh, I love me some Mikey Palmisi, Junior's Heavy. He's just such a unlikable <laughs> shit, and he and Tony fucking hate each other, and it's obvious every moment they're on screen together how much these two just want to wring each other's fucking necks, but they can't. Um, so yeah, any thoughts on the introduction of Jackie April sure. and Mikey Palmisi? This is, uh, in the introduction to this series, we had mentioned the kind of Shakespearean setup of The Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, Jackie April is case in point, the dying king and who will be the successor is much of the source of the contention for the first season. Uh, will it be Tony and will it be Junior? And who does the king want and why? And what relationship does that stir between Tony and Junior? And what is the source of their conflict and how they're going to be relating to each other? So Jackie's an interesting character just in representing that for us in you know who he chooses is going to determine the future of this family. Will he root it in tradition and in the way things have always been done and give the position to Junior, a man who is respected but never really had his due? Or will he give it to Tony, who he knows has the best interest in the family, but also is a bit of a controversial pick in picking him over Junior? Um, and ultimately, Tony decides, you know, so this is this is something else as well. Um, 
in terms of of Junior's number two, that's just a very funny character. I I, I would really just cite him for humor's sake. What a joy he is on screen anytime we see him. Just such a just a shit. I I haven't um. <laughs> This actually, in a weird way, enhances the character. This is totally unrelated to The Sopranos, but uh, that actor, Al Sapienza, um, that's his name, right? Yeah, I got it right. Al Sapienza. Uh, <laughs> I swear to God, I um, when I was like a teenager and I was just really starting to first get into The Sopranos, uh, I was scrolling um, into like... HBO, Cinemax, when, when we finally got those things in my in my house. And it was like two in the morning and I passed this movie and I'm like, oh, that's that's Mikey Palmisi from The Sopranos. What is this? Oh, no. And I, it, it, it's a fucking softcore porn. Of course. <laughs> it's like, so it's it's so funny to me because there are so many like accomplished and, and really not that, the, I mean, and he's good. Like I'm not knocking Al Sapienza. I think he's perfect in this role, but it's just like, <laughs> it, it kind of adds to his scumminess to me that that actor has, has done some soft core, like Absolutely. Cinemax late night porn. I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> um, to piggyback on those points, um, another character, that's introduced in this episode uh, is um, Brendan Falone. Yes. And it, it definitely adds to the humor and it brings up something that we wrestled with in the first episode. Jordan mentioned the, the older generation fading out, getting angry, getting bitter and the younger generation not being with it quite yet. Mm. And Brendan can do great things to epitomize that. He'll also make a great vessel for Tony's anger. Mm. Um, when other characters cannot, he can't, Tony can't beat the shit out of uncle junior because he's mad that Jackie April is dying. Brendan Falone makes a stupid joke. Tony can do whatever he wants, um, which will result in other funny moments. Um, so I think that I mean, the points that you guys made about the other characters, yeah, it's like stupid clear, fucking so. like chemo sabi joke and yeah. then throws them through the meat <laughs> table. <laughs> and I want to come back to that scene because another interesting thing happens in that scene after they leave. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hell of an episode uh, for, for, for character development as a good second episode needs to be. It kind of narrows the focus. I mentioned there were somewhere around seven or eight different plot threads in the first episode. This one, very traditionally for a TV show that is very untraditional, A plot, B plot, C plot. We have um, Chris and Brendan are hijacking Junior's trucks. That's plot A. Uh, Livia and Tony and what to do with Livia. She can't live alone anymore. That's like plot B, maybe plot A. And maybe I ever flipped those. Uh, and then um, AJ's science teacher's car. Uh, we've kind of talked about the first two plots. Does anyone have anything to say about uh, <laughs> this this interesting intersection of... What's interesting about... I think it... I call it plot C because it's perhaps... I don't want to say... Nothing on this show I would say is overtly bad. But it's maybe the least interesting of the, of the plots we're given. And that's actually by design, by the way. Because I think we're supposed to have this sense that this task of hunting down this car of AJ's science teacher is a, is a task that is really beneath gangsters of Polly and, and pussy stature. And it's kind of like... Sure. Um, you know, I remember... Uh, we're D and D players uh, here. Uh, some of us, uh, anyway. And and I, I remember once. Uh, <laughs> sorry, two thirds of us uh, and our producer. Yes. 
<laughs> but I remember uh, Jordan Jordan played this character to get into a personal anecdote here. Jordan played this character who was like this legendary paladin who got knocked down to, you know, he lost all his power in, in a curse and was kind of this very like, you know, he was like a guard to kings. And then because he, he lost all his power, he had to go on this mission just like killing goblins in the sewer. This guy who was probably <laughs> battling dragons and wizards and all this shit. Anyway, bring this back to Sopranos. It's like you got... Pussy and Paulie are kind of established early in this episode and in the pilot as like the gangsterist of gangsters that work for Tony. And they're going like from what is implied to be Starbucks to Starbucks, right? Hunting down for these like petty car thieves. And it's just so beneath them and agitating to them. Well, it's the most overtly comedic of any of the storylines, even though all the storylines have funny elements. Mm. Um, it's really the first time in this series that I think we're digging into either of these two characters. Polly in the pilot has a few lines. They're throwaways. Mm. Pussy in the pilot is a second to Hesh. Right. Um, in this episode, they have their own story where they're going out on this mission. Um, as you say, beneath them, Pussy complains, I'm fucking Rockford over here. Rockford is a show that David Chase worked on years ago. Yep. Um, and when they go into these Starbucks, again, these really funny moments, them encountering the gay characters. Um, and to me, kind of a spiritual center of this storyline is Polly complaining about... Um, what he calls this espresso shit. Um, the people stealing this stuff from Italian uh, Italian people who gave the world the gift of our cuisine. Right. Um, again, this coming from, as you phrased it when we talked about the pilot, Chris, people who make nothing, create nothing, are angry <laughs> that they have been ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So th- this brings up something I've said in a, in a previous episode, but... Um, that malapropism of saying espresso is something that my father does all the time. He's perfectly aware it's espresso. He insists <laughs> on calling it espresso. I think that's there's there's something to that. There's part of the uh, part of the heritage or something. I think it's it's really ingrained in there. But um, it's just like fuck it, I'm gonna say it my way, kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. It's it's <laughs> well again, it's ours, proudly, right? It's, yeah, they took proud, it from proudly us, anti-academic. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I love the C plot in this episode. I, I agree. Yeah. It's a little, um, silly. It does add color as yes. C plots often do. Um, it gives us a sense of what the day to day is like for these characters. It's also the first example on the show of the characters utilizing low cunning to accomplish heroics poorly. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're, this is going to come up a lot where because they have this, um, not fixed sense of morality, but they do have a code they have a different idea of what is right and what is wrong and to what lengths they can go to to correct these things, often making more of a set, uh, a mess out of the situation than, than uh, before. If we're looking at 46 Long as a microcosm for the whole Sopranos universe, which I think it could be because it does, as Chris says, uh, establish normalcy, this is the normalcy of that element, that right. these folks are the defenders of what is good to them. And what is good to them is that this teacher has his car back even if it's not the same car, even yeah. if the paint is still wet, even if the interior is different, they got him his car back. And there's a, a kind of a cuteness to that and kind of a wholesome sense of justice to that. And that is right. something that can only be accomplished in that way by the American gangster. Right. Well, because you have to have a certain, there's a certain element of hypocrisy to the way that that whole thing resolves too, because this is something, and this is something that literally caught me last night for the first time. I've been through this show 15 fucking times and I just kind of, one, the conversation that happens in the pre-credit scene, the only pre-credit scene in the whole show 
uh, it kind of feels like it's just like kind of a casual conversation in the back of the Bing, and they're all just kind of. It ties into the theme of nostalgia a little bit from the last episode, where like the best is over, and there's a little side conversation going on between Pussy and Christopher about cloning, and there's a misunderstanding there. He's like, "I'm not talking about cloning cell phones. I'm talking about fucking sheep. <laughs> you know, like actual scientific cloning." And Tony. As the avatar, the boss, the this kind of stalwart for tradition, in a sense, takes the very traditional view here of, uh, well, I tell my kids only God can make a life, right? And, uh, you know, that's the very traditional moral, quote-unquote, view. But then to result, I, I just think it's an interesting and probably not accidental um kind of twist of fate here that Tony resolves that Tony and his guys resolve this crisis by essentially cloning the teacher's car. It's not his actual car. It's a total, it's a mock-up. It's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good connection. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I'd always thought that conversation was just kind of a humorous throwaway, but I'm like, Oh no, that there's gotta, you know, these guys aren't, nothing is by accident in this show, you know? No, of course not. The hypocrisy that you guys are framing here runs throughout. It's, it, it's, and it's, it's done in these clever, uh, quirky ways it's done in um darker ways um again establishing where we've now we're now in our second hour of knowing tony soprano and when the problem first comes up of chris and brendan unauthorized jack in these trucks um they make this restitution and i think the original figure is uh 15 grand mm, and yeah. uh, tony mentions he could talk to junior use his trademark negotiation skills <laughs> get it down to 10 they leave tony starts putting some of the bills in his pocket so he'll assume it <laughs> presumably utilize those skills, tell Junior, we're going to bring it down to 10 because I say so, then go back to them, say, sorry, I couldn't do X, Y, Z. You guys fucked up. And then he's going to go buy Carmela a coat. I mean, this is like, (laughs) and this is the way that these guys operate. You shouldn't expect them to operate any other way, Mm. but given that there is no honor among thieves. But again, we're not, we're not getting a, um, a rose colored glasses view of this guy at all. Right. Um, from the get-go, so... And, and oh, sorry, go ahead, Jordan. No, please. Well, I was going to say, and, and it's interesting, too, that it's Chris that he's dealing with here, because Chris, another big episode for Chris early on here, um, he's expressing this frustration he wants to be made, right? Because anyone who knows anything, for those of you who aren't familiar with mob culture, maybe watching the show through and listening to the podcast, you know, doing all this for the first time, uh, being made means that other guys can't really fuck with you. It, it's sort of a, it's a, it's like a badge. It's like you can't hurt another made guy. You can't fuck with another made guy. Uh, it, it, and so Chris is not not only I mean he's Tony's nephew, so there is like a certain affection Tony has for Chris. And I'm going to get into something that happens later to me that differentiates Chris from the the rest of the young punks. It adds a little nuance to that element. Um, but. Uh, there's this frustration Chris has that he can be taken advantage of. And even though Tony's his uncle, there's really not anything Chris can do about it. He has to eat shit from Tony he has to eat shit from junior. And that's it. He's just kind of, he just has to be the dutiful soldier. Um, one interesting thing about Chris, uh, in this, in this episode, just knowing where Chris's storyline goes in the series, this is very interesting to me. And also it kind of plays off the movie thing that we, that happened in the pilot where he talks about, you know, that whole Henry, you're going to go Henry Hill on me now conversation. (laughs) Um, Chris is waiting to get into a club, uh, and Martin Scorsese pulls up and gets into the club before he does. And so that's like another little seed uh, in like subtly probably planted in Chris's mind that, you know, even as a gangster, all the shit I have to do as a gangster, I, I don't get as much respect as 
somebody in the movie business. You know what I mean? So that's another little thing that kind of tantalizes Chris in that direction, that he's going through all of this strife and aggravation and sacrifice. And, you know, he's supposed to be a gangster, but he can't even get into this shitty little club. You know? Yeah. This episode um, really uh, lets us in on Chris's sense of entitlement, which is mm. going to be a running theme for his character throughout the series. Um, Chris, in terms of how Tony treats him, because we value each character in terms of how Tony treats them, is kind of anointed in a way. Um, he's treated as being very special to Tony, uh, not just because he's his nephew, but, and maybe this is my own read on this, but he almost seems like he's sort of the heir apparent for the next generation. Mm. Not that he'll be boss someday, but that he'll be a capo, that he'll be someone who is important. And yet he's running around with guys like Brendan. Um, right. You know, there are a lot of these other young male characters that run around with Chris that never do as well as Chris does. And I don't know if it's right. because Chris is special or because Chris believes in his own myth that he right. is this great gangster and that's what he wants to be or to do, you know. There are a lot of great episodes, even later on this, like coming up this season, uh, that explore this theme with Chris. But this idea, uh, and I wrote here um and in my notes that Chris, there is something special and different about Chris because in the first episode, he does kind of loosely embody Tony's frustration with the younger generation of gangster that are coming up. This kind of impulsive, you know, loose cannon, you know, knuckle-headed gangster. But Chris is different, and I think it's it's shown to us finally and given a little bit more color and nuance in this scene with Brendan where he decides not to go on the hijacking. And, and, you know, to a certain element, whether or not he keeps this attitude remains to be seen. But to a certain element, Chris still at this point in the show and in this point in his life does still believe in the myth of the American gangster. And, you know, why, you know, we need to listen to Tony. Why be a gangster? Why be in a crew? This is what it is. We're paying our dues. And Brendan is just like, fuck that. Fuck you. I'm going to go rob the truck. And, you know, we see what happens to him and in, in, as, as that happens. Well, as long as we're talking about the themes of the changing world and what's old school and new school, I mean, we're all Italian-Americans. As uh, Tony's actual son, AJ, is told later in the series, we're Italian, you're the son, you're always going to be the most important. Chris, even as, I guess, not being Tony's blood nephew, that relationship of the families and a quasi-familial relationship and the fact that they're actually cousins... Um, has this quality in an old reading of the guard, an old reading of our values that Tony is not going to give up on. And it's, it's pressured and challenged many times throughout the show. But I think from this point, from the beginning on, we get this development of Chris being pulled in these different directions and Tony desperately trying to get him back into the fold. Hmm. Getting back to Tony and Livia quickly, because I think that is ultimately at the heart of what this episode is. It's it's really moving to me. I I, I, I love just how, like, you know, because one of the big questions of the series is, uh, is Tony a, a good person who's kind of trapped in this bad shell and this bad environment, or is he a fundamentally a bad seed who occasionally does things that are good or make us like him? And I think uh, one of the more humanizing moments for him is seeing how legitimately affected this potential sociopath is at putting his mother away. He really, I, I don't think he's bullshitting Melfi in the later scenes with his sadness. He really is sad at having to put Livia in Green Grove. 
it's really upsetting for him. He this feels a, like a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not what, because he's, he's wrestling with something, right? He's, he's wrestling with this feeling of this is what I have to do to, to I mean, to, well, to, because I, he knows deep down that Melfi's right, that he has this fucking rage at her for what she's done. And, um, uh, and yet at the same time, it's like, he has to do it because she's just, you, you can't, you can't live with Olivia. She, that scene with them uh, again, and we talked about maybe the best scene of the last episode being between Tony and Livia, uh, in, in Livia's house. when we first meet her, I think I, again, if I had to pick like an MVP scene in this, in this episode, it's the uh, scene between Tony and Livia yet again when she's laying on the couch and the whole go into the ham, get the carving knife and stab me here. Now, you know, that whole scene is probably, again, registered with me the most as frustrating, sad, funny. It really just had it all in there. I think far and away it's the best scene. Um, building on many of the same themes that Jordan referenced when we talked about the scene in episode one. Yeah. Um, it's great. Uh, in the way that they have, she's this. so fucking good. I mean, Nancy Marchand, she's just uh, on at this Amazing. point, otherworldly good already, and we're only in episode two. Uh, speaking of that scene, I actually wanted to briefly mention this. Um, it seems that repetition in dramatic narrative and literature is a tool that can bring you back to the important themes in a work. Right? It's an important tool. In The Sopranos, again, it's just a little different. Mm. Tony Soprano repeats things. And they don't communicate what he wants, mm. right? Again, for me, something much more in that, that reflects maybe my own life. I repeat this thing that a piece of wisdom that somebody shared with me, it doesn't communicate anything or it falls completely flat. Um, again, the absurdity, the breakdown of communication. Um, and that scene uh, reflects um, so much of that. And I feel, I definitely feel Tony's frustration and his pain in those moments. Um, as far as whether or not he's good or bad, I guess we gotta, we'll, we'll take the 86 episodes and figure it out. I still don't know. And his line, you gave our cousin fucking Cartier dinner rings and you give me a vibrating chair. Well, that's <laughs> an extremely funny laugh line. It also ties in again to this technological theme where something old and valuable is forsaken at the sake of something kind of new and shitty that Tony just has mm. no interest in. Another, yet another example of that. The Sopranos provides a lot of opportunity for self-reflection as well. Um, in terms of, you know, we, we asked the question right away in episode one, is this man good or bad? And it comes up yeah. again in every episode. And I mean, it's it's the question, really. Yeah, and, and it's, it's essentially unanswerable, but only in the same way that any one of us is both good and bad. Um, you know, Tony does things that are completely monstrous, uh, and we'll have many opportunities to talk about those later. He's already done things that are monstrous by the second episode in terms yeah. of how he's treated other people. Um, but just to bring it back to the, the teacher's car situation and this sense of justice within the family, there is this idea that the, end just, that the ends justify the means, and that those ends are fair. Uh, and fair is not necessarily the same thing as, as good. I look at that restitution situation. I look at the uh, teacher being given back his car situation. I try to take those away from the family for a second. And I said, well, what if we just were using the tools of society as they are? Uh, the police, the courts, um, you know, making a complaint to the police station. Would that have been more effective in some way, getting the teacher his car back? I, I don't think so. In many ways, the roots and the methods that Tony, Sopranos use, Tony Soprano uses is, is, is more effective than the mainstream method. 
And again, that's that's part of the romantic uh, romanticization of the American gangster and saying like, look at his methods versus the methods of the state or of the system. But it's tied so closely to his uh, individual morality as a person. Uh, part of what's so fascinating about Tony Soprano's psychological profile is what he considers good and what he considers to be evil. And so much of that surely must come from his mother. And if mm. if she is having this reaction to being put in the home, then surely what he is doing must be wrong, which is mm. why he feels so bad about it. Even as the viewer, we can kind of see that what he's doing is probably right. Yeah. Very well said. Um, just a couple things. I want to start bringing this thing home here, but uh, just a couple little notes. This is the first time the phrase poor you is uttered in a Sopranos episode. It <laughs> kind of becomes a hallmark of the poor character you. of Livia. Poor you. Um, more of Tony's funny malapropisms. I love this is not this is two kind of Sopranos, very Sopranos-y things that happen in this episode. One when Tony tries to take advice or quotes from the very intellectual Dr. Melfi and impart them into his universe. He always fucks it up or they don't get it. <laughs> it's like um, when he tries to tell uh, Olivia that uh, Green Grove is more like a hotel at Captain Teeb, uh, and uh, he says Captain Teebs, and she's like, "Who's he?" <laughs> He's like, Captain owns luxury hotels or something. That's not the point. Uh, <laughs> you know, but like anytime he tries to bring the uh, the stuff from like Melfi's world into his own world, it always has incredibly hilarious results. Um, so the, just that continues. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I mean, this is a, this is a very solid episode. I, I, I always, this is one of those episodes I always am ready to have like it's a, this is a fun one it's got a little bit of everything it's got great livia it's got gangsters hijacking trucks and having intense meetings uh another little sopranos thing i don't want to get too heavy into it in this episode because there's episodes coming up that deal with this topic in particular very well uh, one in episode in season five i'm thinking of in particular but uh, the issue with race on the sopranos mm. is something that that they tackle with uh much expertise humor and irony sure um, with the nurse from just, trinidad yeah yeah, the Trinidadian nurse who, um, and we're t again, again with this idea of ricochets and misdirection, uh, that moment when Livia blames the nurse for the plate that she stole from a restaurant, like Livia and her sister stole this plate from a restaurant in Rome, and then she is flipping it around on the Trinidadian woman, Livia suspiciously eyeing the black male lady, what's she doing now? And I'm not going to name <laughs> names, but growing up in a big old school Italian family, I definitely had a fair share of people in my life growing up that had very similar quirks, I'll call them, to what we see from Livia in these moments. Just a very funny, interesting thing, and Tony telling her no ganja. Well, it seems like one of the um, the frameworks that we've used more than once in talking about this is the, I think, an old school value system that is fading away with time and, I guess, technology and the change of the millennium and all that. Um, and the way that that's framed in these various scenes, racism is, of course, a horrible thing, a cancer. It's utilized in The Sopranos often to, again, very funny effect yeah. when he tells... Um, the woman, when you're with my mother here, no ganja. Um, I think at one point, uh, after being very kind and genial and saying goodbye to Tony, Tony crosses the street and Junior says, a smoke he hires for his own mother. Right. Um, the the scene, the ricochet scene, Brendan Falone chastises one of his black cohorts for the wrong the way that he's holding the gun. That sideways mm. shit. Yeah. He doesn't like that. He wants to be old school, hold the gun up straight. 
right? Yeah. Th- this again will guide the way that The Sopranos deals with these issues um, with playfulness and sometimes levity throughout the 86 episodes. So, yep. yep. Very good. All right. Uh, so, I mean, I'm going to just kind of tie this up for me, my final reaction on this episode. Uh, what, what, what I'm kind of left most curious about going forward is what this resentment in the situation with Livia is going to mean for Tony and the rest of the family. Uh, the uh, the uh, lady at Green Grove um, tells Livia in a little Italian anecdote, time and patience change the mulberry leaf to silk. Uh, my suspicion is that it's going to take a little bit more than time and patience to turn the mulberry leaf that is Livia Soprano to silk. Um, Paul, Jordan, any final thoughts on 46 Long before we wrap this up? Uh, I will say that it's it's sort of telling about Tony's character that, uh, you know, despite what has gone on with the truck and the restitution or whatever, the episode's title comes from, if I'm correct, his jacket size. Yeah, Uh, he does want a suit for himself. And this is one of the first times that uh, Tony's vanity is brought up as a uh, a point to focus on. Uh, It's it's very important to these people how they look uh, and their image is is really, really important to them. Um, So I I think we're going to see how that is brought forward more as well. But um, this episode title was actually very vexing for me for years. I guess it must have been obvious to many others, but it was not to me. But as soon as someone said, oh, well, that's that's his jacket size. That's the that's the suit he wears, of course. I thought, oh, yes, because, of course, what is the gangster without his attire? Uh, You got to look the part. My experience and appreciation for the title has the same trajectory and similarly only I only came to appreciate it in, say, the last few weeks while preparing for this broadcast. Right, right. Um, listen, I think this is one of the greatest shows of all time. There are I'm going to be critical when the show calls for it as we go forward, but these episodes are early on especially are pretty flawless. There are some episode titles I think are uh are like what the hell? What? Why? But um, you know, this this is, seems like one of them at first, but I think it it fits right in with everything we're we're talking about and uh glad we kind of made that discovery and with that guys it's been another one this is the sopranos podcast i'm chris paul and jordan and uh we'll see you for episode three thanks for joining us 